Welcome to Stratford Lutheran's Sermon Podcast. I am Pastor Alex, and this is a podcast that each week will deliver a new sermon message. These are taken directly from our ongoing sermon series, and you can find them in on YouTube if you would like to watch them, but these are here for your listening pleasure. And I am so thankful that you have taken this opportunity to hear this particular sermon. And as always, if you have any questions, you can reach out to me. I am on Instagram at quorum.dale.life. You can reach me at Undying Light Ministries as I host that podcast, Undying Light. And I'm a co-host of a Matter of Truth podcast. This is just a means to allow my sermons to uh, be listened to at your convenience as a listener. And again, I just want to say I am very appreciative of you taking this opportunity to listen. Now, here's this week's sermon. The first lesson for today is taken from Jeremiah 26, verses 8 through 15. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking, all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate, without inhabitant? And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and took the seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, this man deserves the sentence of death because, of his pro- because he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard with his, your own ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and all the people saying, The Lord sent me to the prophecy against this house and this city and all the words you have heard. Now, therefore, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to speak to you all these words in your ears. This is the word of the Lord. The responsive reading is taken from Psalm 4. You'll find it in your bulletin insert. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. 
You have put more joy in my heart than you have with, when their grain and wine abound. The second lesson is taken from Philippians chapter 7, verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk, according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk all the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their, they glory in your, their shame, with minds set on earthly things. Put our citizenship, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. you would please rise for the reading of God's word. Our gospel message today is taken from Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it, how often have I gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the gospel of our Lord. You may be seated. Have you ever found yourself using animal analogies to describe somebody? For example, if you call somebody a pig... This is giving them the idea that they're a messy or unruly individual. But if I go to my daughter and I say that she's a little kitten or a bunny, these are usually terms of endearment. Other analogies that use animals can, are like a bull in a china shop or an ostrich with its head in the sand. Our text today, Jesus uses animal terms to describe himself and Herod. And, as you shouldn't be shocked, this isn't the first time animals are sh show up in, in Scripture. This isn't the first time imagery is used to describe something. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when we see the serpent coming on the scene and the serpent is described as more cunning than all of the other animals. If we jump into Leviticus, we see a whole plethora 
of animals being described. But our text today focuses on two very specific animals, the fox and a hen. Now, if we just read this text as we would just be going through a lectionary or in, perhaps in your own private study, it might come across as a bit peculiar, unique perhaps, or possibly it might even seem out of place. But if we peel back these layers, we will see again the foundation and understanding and reasoning behind this text. And if we peel back the layers far enough, we will even see how the Old Testament will again shine light on this passage. To fully understand these few verses, I want to build a little bit of context so we all know where uh, we are in terms of uh, Luke chapter 13. Jesus is currently on the road to Jerusalem. We are in the season of Lent, which is the last few weeks of the life of Christ. This will lead us into Jerusalem where he will be arrested and he will be crucified and he will die. So this is a narrative of his journey. Luke starts this in chapter 9 and will continue it all the way through the 19th chapter. And this is often just simply called the journey narrative that compasses all of these chapters. So we find ourselves here with Jesus teaching, because it says in that hour he was approached by these Pharisees. So he's actively teaching, healing, and performing miracles. When these Pharisees come on the scene and warn him of Herod Antipas's warning that he is going to kill you. See, Jesus is in Herod's territory, and Herod does not appreciate the fact that Christ is here teaching He's threatened by it. But as we will unpack, we see that Jesus isn't moved by this threat. He doesn't change his course. He doesn't even acknowledge the fact that he should leave in order to not be crucified. If we know Herod's track record, we can turn all the way back to the time when he has John the Baptist killed. And that caused a bit of an outrage and so he knows that he doesn't quite need additional blood on his hands. But he gives these warnings, and he might even have let it slip to Pharisees that were in his council that he needs Jesus to be removed. And again, as always, these Pharisees weren't necessarily always in agreement with Christ. They always opposed what he taught because it went against the traditions that they had cultivated. So they tell him, leave, because Herod wants to kill you. Again, is this a friendly warning? Are they actually genuinely concerned for the life of Christ? Or is there some other secret motive? Well, truthfully, based upon our text and really the whole survey of Scripture, there's no clear motive behind this. And really... Why they come to Jesus isn't important at all. But what is important in this text is what follows. It's how Jesus answers this warning. He calls Herod a fox. See, in, in this time period, this would have been an insult to an individual, especially one who had power. 
And in fact, in the time in this culture, the Jews would often use the term fox to either mean a worthless or perhaps even a sly person. And so Jesus is moving towards essentially utilizing both of these. He views Herod as being worthless, but also sly and cunning. Because he's not quite direct in his threat to kill Jesus, but he sends these Pharisees. So Jesus is essentially unfazed by Herod's threats, and he makes the notion that he's going to continue doing what he has already been doing, casting out demons, healing the sick, performing these miracles. He is not thwarted by this mere threat. So while the term fox that Jesus uses here in the text isn't used often in the Old Testament, and when it really is, in only a few passages, it's actually describing the actual animal of a fox. But I found some interesting parallels as I went on my adventure this week, and I came to Ezekiel chapter 13. And in this context, this is a whole long section where Ezekiel is warning false preachers and false prophets. In fact, he condemns these false prophets who have come into and have swayed Israel from the one true God. And here in this text, in the fourth verse, Ezekiel uses this term jackal to describe these false prophets. He says these jackals among the ruins can be described as an animal that makes a lot of noise but doesn't actually say anything at all. And closely related, the jackal is a part of the family of fox. So we see a little bit of a parallel, another connection here between this warning that Ezekiel gives these false prophets and Jesus calling a Herod. Both speak but no action that follows. They say a lot, but nothing actually truthfully is said at all. So as we progress through our text, we see Jesus making this reference to Jerusalem being the place where the prophets are killed. Jerusalem, a place where God's people were supposed to gather. This brings to not mind Deuteronomy chapter 4, where God promises the Israelites this particular land if they simply obey his decrees and his commands. A place where God's people are to gather, live, and flourish. But instead, Jerusalem becomes a place of idolatry and the killing of prophets. Second Chronicles, in the 24th chapter, we see that the prophet Zechariah is plotted against and is actually stoned to death in the temple of the Lord. As we just read in Jeremiah 26, the prophet Uriah is struck with a sword by the king Jeroboam. This city of peace has been given over to these ruthless tyrants. And we see that now, as Herod is the governor, if they killed the prophets, what would they do to the Son of God? Yet, as Jesus refers to prophets being killed outside Jerusalem, he isn't referring to any in particular, but more importantly, he's referring to himself. 
giving us another prophecy of his death to come. He is ultimately pointing to his own death, which must come in Jerusalem. After this prediction, we see the second animal used in the analogy. Jesus refers to himself as a hen protecting her brood. This reference points us to the truth that surveys all through Scripture. A term often used to describe God's gracious return of his people after exile. As noted in Jeremiah 32, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. The imagery of the hen drawing her chicks together can be noted in Psalm 36 in the seventh verse. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. These imageries are often showing us how God is offering refuge under his wings. But like wayward chicks, the people stubbornly refuse God's will for, for their lives. And sadly, this continues on for us Christians today. We get ourselves so wrapped up in the comings and goings of life that we truly forget what God's ultimate purpose is for us in our lives. It comes to this question, what is God's purpose? What is, what is it that God has given us to do as Christians? See, this isn't some sort of prosperity moment where I can get up and tell you that God's purpose is for you to be happy and healthy and live long and unattacked lives, one where you will escape suffering and persecution. But no, really, the depth of Scripture gives us a completely different picture, that we will be hated by the world because of our faith. But that's not even ultimately what our will is that God has for us. It is simply this, to spread the gospel. I can't make it any more basic than that. God's will for the life of the Christian is to share the gospel with other people. Because it is ultimately God's will that all people would be saved. And if we believe that Christ died for all people on the cross, then that gives us the opportunity to preach to all people. This brings us back to the point of what Jesus is saying, that it is only through him that his people will be protected. But it's not, again, an earthly protection. It is eternally protected. One where only through Christ we will have our salvation. One only through Christ where we will have eternal life. We take refuge in him. And so that is what God's will for us in our lives are. To share this gospel, this good news of what Jesus Christ has come, what he has done and is still doing. That is, it is through him only that we will have salvation, eternal life. As Jesus says, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and only through him can people reach the Father. That narrows that road down. 
There is no other God. There is no other means. There's nothing that we can do. It is only through Christ to which we can reach the Father. It is only through him that we receive the promise of eternal life. Jesus finishes this comment back to the Pharisees, and he says, Behold, your house is forsaken. Prophecies from Zechariah, Micah, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and throughout all of the Psalms, point us to Israel's ultimate destruction. Interesting. All of these prophets in the Old Testament came and warned Israel of impending doom. They said, if you don't repent, then you will be overrun. You will be taken into captivity. And this happened throughout Israel's history. But is that what Jesus is referring to? Quite possibly. He could also be even giving us just a little bit of a prophecy to come in later years. A parallel, not to the Old Testament, but to the New Testament. Jesus kind of connects the dots between what he says in Matthew 24, 25 with this text here. That he will prophesy that the temple of Jerusalem will be destroyed in 70 AD. And this actually happens in 70 AD. He doesn't give us a specific date, but he says that there will be a time when one stone is not standing upon another, and we know that just a few short years later, that happens. The temple is destroyed. And so we can start to see just a little bit of connection with this particular prophecy that the house has been forsaken. And because Israel fails to repent of their idolatry, because they fail to recognize that this is the Son of God standing before them, because they failed to do that, they are left in ruin. They are left in destruction. And in fact, after 70 AD, Israel is scattered to the ends of the world to only finally come back into Israel, into Jerusalem in the 1940s. Quite some time they were in exile because of their idolatry. So I leave you with this. Our text, once again, is rich with parallels to the Old Testament, showing us that Jesus is not thwarted by Herod or his threats. Jesus is ultimately on this journey to where he will die in Jerusalem. I preached this very sermon quite a few years ago. In fact, it was probably one of my first actual sermons that I preached. And I was re referring back to my notes because I was kind of curious, where do I line up doctrinally with what I'm preaching today and, and what I preached on a number of years ago? And I, I have to admit, the, the sermon that I preached a couple years ago was, was not very good. And, and I would hope that today's sermon isn't as good as what I will preach in 10 years. As we progress as pastors, it's our duty to continue to be sharpened by God's Word. But one thing that kept kind of sticking back out at me in that old sermon was this thread that I tried to weave of God's sovereignty. Now, I, I, I used a lot of poor illustrations in that particular sermon, but one thing that I found to be really just remarkable 
was that this moment, despite the times that Jesus faced the opposition, he was never thwarted from his mission. He was, his course never changed. He was set on this path to Jerusalem. In fact, we can even see in his early ministry when he's in his hometown preaching and the crowds despise him and try to drive him off a cliff. But he walks through the crowds because he knows his time is not yet at hand. Christ knows the appointed time to which he will die and he will continue to preach until that moment. And so this threat that Herod gives us isn't to really move Jesus at all. But what it does show us is God's sovereignty in the plan of Christ, that he will come, he will do, complete his mission, and he will ultimately die on the cross for us. Our story continues each week to draw us closer to that night when he will be arrested and he will be tried and he will be killed. Each week we will continue to take a look at Christ and we will continue to see him demonstrated to us as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And we will ultimately be able to come together on Easter morning and celebrate the resurrection. But first, we must go through the cross. We will meet Christ as he hangs there in just a few short weeks. But all of this is for a reason. All of this, even this little text that might seem a little bit out of place, a little bit peculiar to read, has a purpose because it shows us that Jesus is on this path. He will be crucified, he will die, and he will rise from the grave. And his death and resurrection is what shatters our bonds. It breaks the chains of sin, one that will free you from destruction. This comforting truth that Jesus is ultimately in control cannot be, and cannot be deterred provides for us the greatest comfort that we know that Jesus will fulfill his plans. All of this provides the Christian comfort that when God says something, he remains true in it. If there's a promise given in Scripture, it will be completed. When we have the promise of the resurrection for all of the saints, then those who believe will experience this resurrection. When the forgiveness of sins is promised, that will completely come true. In fact, as we sit today, all of our sins have already been forgiven on the cross some 2,000 years ago. It is only at that juncture that we can attribute all of our sins, past, present, and future, to have been forgiven. And if you've committed a sin that you find to be unforgivable, I will give you this promise, that the only sin that you cannot be forgiven of is unbelief. Because if you don't believe that Christ truly did what he did, then nothing else matters. But if Christ came to the cross, 
bore the weight of the world's sin on his shoulders. Died and then ultimately rose from the grave. I come back to the text I come to all the time. Romans 10, 9. If Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the grave, then you will be saved. And that is the beautiful promise of this passage that we will see come to conclusion in just a few short weeks. Amen.